Welcome everyone to the happy hour. Supriya, how are you this morning? I am doing great. I've had my coffee and I'm ready to go. How many cups a day are you? <laughs> wow, that is a loaded question. I think I'm at about two. Oh, that's amateur hour. I'm a, I'm a three minimum. And I'm talking like, you know, nice full 12 to 16 ounce cups. But I do them all, as you know, like by 9 a.m. And I cut myself off. But got to have that morning coffee. I am feeling uh, alert right now, not so much because of the coffee, but because I have two uh, fighting cats right in front of me as we speak. So I'm going to try to be be present for for this that we're doing today, despite these animals being absolutely insane in front of me. Some of you from my newsletter and, and online know about these ridiculous creatures. But anyways, we're uh, really happy to be talking about uh, a really wonderful guest that we had, Supriya, uh, on the happy hour in this particular episode, uh, Jill Stoddard, who's a psychologist who has a great book coming out on imposter syndrome. We're going to talk, or I shouldn't say syndrome, as we learned, That's right? That's right. Imposterism. Imposterism. Impo- phenomenon. Right? Okay. right. We got to get away phenomenon. from syndrome. Syndrome. And we'll understand why after listening to this episode. But yeah, great conversation with Jill, uh, who is a pretty awesome guest, uh, psychologist off the clock. Some of you know a favorite cousin of this show. She's one of the co-hosts of that. Um, but yeah, tell us a little bit about what we, uh, who we spoke to in this episode, Supriya. Yeah. So oh, yeah, that's a good place to start. So Jill Stoddard is passionate about sharing science-backed ideas from psychology to help people thrive. She's a psychologist, writer, TEDx speaker, award-winning teacher, peer-reviewed ACT trainer, and co-host of the popular Psychologist Off the Clock podcast, as Jonah mentioned. Dr. Stoddard is the author of three books, The Big Book of ACT Metaphors, A Practitioner's Guide to Experiential Exercises and Metaphors in Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, Be Mighty, and Imposter No More. Her writing has also appeared in Psychology Today, Scary Mommy, Thrive Global, The Good Men Project, and Mindful Return. She regularly appears on podcasts and as an expert source for various media outlets. She lives in Newburyport, Massachusetts with her husband, two kids, and disobedient French bulldog. <laughs> you have some- well, I love disobedient animals. You know. <laughs> Speak of the devils. <laughs> but we, we had a great conversation with Jill. And uh, one of the things that really struck me about this, and I've had such conversations even since with random people here and there, and it, it actually always strikes me of this phenomenon, whatever you want to call it, imposterism, as we'll talk about, just how widespread it is. People can be at really high echelons of life in in almost any field, whether it's in academics or healthcare or business or finance or law. And it's it's remarkable to me of just how much we carry this with us, right? You could accomplish all the things in the world on paper from the outside and still struggle with this internal angst, the sense of not being good enough, the sense of being a fraud and, oh, today's the day that I'm going to be finally exposed for the charlatan that I am. And that feeling that so many of us carry with us is quite widespread, quite impactful. And uh, yeah, I think Jill does a great job of explaining to some degree where this comes from and what we can also do about it. Anything that jumped out to you in terms of our conversation with her, Sabria? Yeah. I mean, I think I think just that and making it so explicit, this disconnect that we have in terms of, of how we perceive ourselves and the roles that we might be in, whether it's professionally, whether it's in relationships. 
And, and that struggle that comes from that disconnect, I think is, can be really hard. And we talk in the episode, it's hard to really quantify this, but we think that there's about 70% of people struggle with this. And so it's pretty mm-hmm. widespread and, and not something that's discussed frequently because of the nature of this, right? So uh-huh. if you think you're a fraud, at whatever it might be, <laughs> that might keep you from talking about it, <laughs> um, really kind of processing what's contributing to that and, and dissecting the accuracy of it. So I think that just having the context and understanding this, where it comes from, the framework, we also discuss with Jill strategies to try to, to bring this down and to reduce that suffering and that struggle that can come up. And of course, that, that paradox of we all feel like we're unique in that feeling to some degree. Totally. And therefore, we don't talk about it. And therefore, we feel like we're unique in it. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way where we feel like you know everyone else has it all figured out. And then you know you 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 think that you're the only one without those answers, and you know you have different experiences along the way. I think you've probably had this. I've had it mm-hmm. where you know you sometimes see after time that yeah, I think a lot of people experience this, and if you don't experience any of it, maybe that's the bigger problem. I can argue, <laughs> um, but you know, I think you know, can we dial it down? Can we manage it? Can we not? I think importantly, not let it get in the way of us doing things that matter, right. of us pursuing our dreams of us, you know, doing the things that we want to do in life, even if we have those feelings uh, somewhere within us. So I think that's, yeah, I think something that we will cover certainly in that conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the the values piece that we've discussed in, in some of our episodes and, and definitely in this one in terms of how do you continue to live a life that is values-based and, and move towards those mm-hmm. values that are important to you, even when this struggle or this disconnect might be coming up for you in terms of who you are and what you're doing. So I I really loved Absolutely. this episode and I think it'll speak to a lot of people and it, it definitely spoke to both of us. I think I can speak for you. I'm saying speak a lot, but... Um. Well, we'll speak about it as we, <laughs> as we go. We'll... But yeah, I think a great episode to come. So folks, buckle up. If you struggle with feeling not good enough, if you struggle with that little voice inside of your head telling you that you don't know what you're doing and the rest of the world has it all figured out, you may have imposterism, imposter syndrome. We're not going to use that term and you'll see why, but we are going to get into that conversation with the uh, great Jill Stoddard right after this brief interlude. Take care. Welcome, everyone, to The Happy Hour, and we at The Happy Hour today are joined by Jill Stoddard. Jill, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonah. I'm excited to be here. Well, Supri and I are very excited. We've been talking about this conversation, actually, for for quite some time with excitement, with anticipation, and I think it's going to be a benefit for all of our listeners as well, uh, both from an intellectual standpoint. Of course, we're fascinated by the topics that you talk about, but Supri, I think safe to say we are maybe just as excited to learn uh, on on a personal basis on these kinds of topics. Would that be accurate? That is absolutely accurate. I am an open book, guys. We've got three open books. Uh, So obviously a lot lot that we're going to dive into today, and I know we're going to cover quite a bit of interesting territory with you, Jill. Before we do that, though, Supriya always grants me one wish, which is that at the beginning of every interview, I get to ask one, sort of like a genie in a way, but I get to ask one just totally random question that has very little to do with the content, with the topics that we're getting into, and it's more just something that I'm interested in about, right? It could be food-related, music, movies, whatever. Freebie time is what I call it. 
You're making me so, nervous. <laughs> oh, don't be nervous. Everyone gets nervous. But no, I thought today, because you, like me, have spent much of your life on each coast, right? You've spent mm -hmm. some time in California, some time in, in the Northeast. So I thought what we could do real quick before we dive in is offend half of the audience sort of one at a time and tell me what is your what, what is one thing you liked better about the West Coast and one thing you like better about the East Coast? Oh, you know what? This is actually easy, and I think it will not offend anyone. All right. Um, so the West Coast, I was in San Diego. And if you Google, and people can do this and check me, if you Google best year-round climate in the world, at least the last time I checked, the world, not just the country, San Diego comes up number one on the list. Oh. And I now live in New England. So clearly, the climate in San Diego is quite a lot nicer, especially in the winter, than the climate in New England. Is New England number two on the list or are there other places in between perhaps? Not, not even close to number two <laughs> on the list. No, as a matter of fact, it's not. Although we did have our first winter back here was mild. So we're, we're okay. The best thing about the East Coast is just personal for me. It's where my family is. And, you know, we have seen my family more in the 11 months that we've been back than we saw them probably in the 25 years that I lived in San Diego. So that to me, that's like where my heart is right now. It's where I feel like I need to be for this second half of my life. And I just wouldn't trade it for the weather at this Love point. And, and you can always come back. A very diplomatic And we can visit San Diego question. in the winter. Very well done. Very diplomatic. I don't think anybody got offended from that. Um, was, and, and the pizza too, let's be honest, on the East Coast would be a little bit better. Oh, the yeah. pizza's way better. Although I would argue that probably the food overall in California. Well, we're not going to get into this, but um, well, I don't know. I don't know. Compared to like a New York out there, I don't know. That's uh, depends. That's seafood is probably point. better yeah. here. See, I don't eat pizza. seafood, so yeah. and, and you can only sure. eat so much pizza. But that's okay. I'm Californian through and through. So. I like to test the outer limits of how much pizza a person can eat. Um, <laughs> you do eat a lot of pizza. Oh. I could do it every day if my waistline would allow me and you know, metabolism and all that. It's I, I never get tired of it. There's so many varieties. Anyways, I could talk about pizza all day. We should have a pizza. A pizza podcast. A pizza podcast one of these days. Anyways, but that is not what we are here for. Is it? No, it's not. Um, and actually, maybe we will get into that now. So Jill really, really loved your book. And, and that's what we're going to start by talking about today. And, and maybe... Also, I loved your title, Imposter No More. Mm -hmm. Very clever Excellent title. Excellent title. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, so maybe we can just start off by talking a little bit about what imposter syndrome is. And and maybe for people that haven't heard this term, what, what do people experience and how would they know if they're experiencing imposter syndrome? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. And so imposter, it's it's been kind of rebranded a syndrome, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit too. But when it was first identified, it was called the imposter phenomenon back in the 70s. And essentially, this experience is a feeling of like phoniness or inadequacy that exists and persists even when there's evidence to the contrary. So basically, in other words, when people experience this imposter phenomenon, they're typically bright and successful but they don't really see themselves that way despite their accomplishments. And so you said, what do they experience? Like they tend to question their legitimacy. They tend to question whether they really belong if they're part of a like an elite group. They believe that 
others overestimate their competence. So like, I'm not as smart as other people think I am. And like all of this taken together creates a fear that at any moment they're going to be found out, you know, that they're actually not competent and that they'll be exposed as a fraud. Such a nice synopsis of it. Were you in my mind, sort of mind reading (laughs) as you were describing that? Uh, and, and I ask that because, you know, we we'll get into this, but, you know, it's definitely something that I've dealt with. And, and I feel like come a long way. So I'm curious, actually, later in the conversation, if any of the things I've sort of stumbled on along, even on a on a personal level with this mesh, sort of with your with your perspectives, but a really fascinating overview that you gave. And one of the things that really strikes me about it, and that you alluded to is, you know, I think Supriya and I, we both have, you know, as psychologists have gotten a lot of training and experience in what's called cognitive behavioral therapy for the listeners. And a lot of what you try to do there is examine the evidence for and against a certain belief, try to identify, you know, what is the, what are the facts? What do they say? And sort of look at things in a more balanced and realistic way. And one of the things that's always been challenging about this imposter experience, you know, not only for me, but in working with clients who deal with it so much is sometimes the evidence is all stacked in favor of, no, no, you've got the expertise. You've done this talk 500 times. You've published this article. You've done this. You've done that. You've got this degree. You've achieved this echelon. And it doesn't feel that way to the person. Mm -hmm. Nothing penetrates that sort of emotional experience on a certain level, which can be one of the real challenging parts, of course. Yeah. I think that's what one of the things that makes this the most interesting is that you would think logically that this should be an experience that we can achieve our way out of, right? Mm -hmm. Like if, if I win the Nobel prize, like at that point, shouldn't I know that I am adequate and legitimate and all of the things And that doesn't appear to be the case. And part of it may be that the higher you climb, the more you're expected to know, right? So Mm -hmm. like if you're a trainee or working in the mailroom or whatever the sort of first thing you do as a junior person is, there's a certain level that you're expected to know. But if you're the CEO, you're expected to know all the things, even if you don't feel like you know all of the things. Um, And at that point, now you also have a reputation to defend. So it's like the pressure and the expectation grows as the achievements grow. So we don't, we can't really achieve, achieve our way out of it. Reminds me a lot of that line in the research on like hedonic adaptation, even in that way in the happiness literature, where, you know, those two factors kind of that you mentioned of rising aspiration. So the higher you climb on that ladder, the more that you feel like you have to keep achieving and, and moving up. And also social comparison, right? As social creatures, we are looking at what's around us. And as you move towards sort of that that along that line, you know, there is no end point to it where you can kind of look up one day and say, I've I've made it. Yeah, there's always somebody who's doing more or doing better. And we do have that tendency to compare up rather than compare down, mm-hmm. right? I'm wondering too. So, you know, when I read your book and and just even in hearing you speak about this now, there's a lot that resonates. And Jonah and I have had a lot of conversations about this, about imposterism prior to, to this, but it isn't something that's talked about very commonly, even in in our field as psychologists. So I'm curious about whether you could speak to the factors that might predict imposter syndrome and, and how common it is. Yeah. Well, the, the how common it is, is very. And, you know, so the <laughs> literature has different um, estimates, but generally it could be anywhere as high as up to 70% of people will experience wow. this at some point in their life. And 
you know, I mentioned earlier that like it's called a syndrome now, but it's not really a syndrome. And that's part of the reason. How can something be a syndrome if the majority of the population experiences it at some point? And, and to answer, you know, what predicts who develops this, it is shocking how little research is out there. If you do a Google search right now, if you just type in imposter syndrome, I think you get 40 million hits, 400 million hits. I don't know what it is. Wow. It's like an, an absolutely gigantic number. But if you go to a science database like PubMed and type it in, I think you get 100 something hits. And so, and most of those studies are, you know, correlational, descriptive kinds of studies. They're not like the really robust scientific studies we'd like to see that really give us good information about what this is about. So that's just to kind of start with the, the caveat. Mm-hmm. But the answer to who develops this is like, we don't really know. But, um, and part of that is also because there are some discrepancies. So there are some research studies that that say this happens more frequently in women than in men. Um, in fact, when Pauline Wait, Pauline Clance, Clance and Imes were the original psychologists who identified this phenomenon. They initially thought that this was predominantly occurring in high achieving women. More recent research has found like, "Mm, that may not be true. Sometimes we look and men and women are are experiencing experiencing it equally. What I suspect is happening, and I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but as sort of a hypothesis out there that I would like love for a dissertation student to please come like do this research. Whoever's listening out there. Whoever's write listening. This down. <laughs> I have a feeling that this has more to do with marginalization history mm-hmm. than than like at, so women can have a history of marginalization, but I suspect that when they're not finding gender differences in studies. It's it's because there are plenty of men who have also been marginalized. So I suspect if you took all people who had been marginalized and compared them to people who hadn't been marginalized, you know, sort of irrespective of gender, this is where you would really see the difference. And 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 that's because if you think just sort of like, oh God, what's the word I'm looking for? Common sense, right? Is if you have a history of being told you don't belong at this table, whether it's you know women at men's tables or people of color in white spaces or you know LGBTQ people in straight cis spaces, then it would sort of stand to reason that you would be more likely to have this experience of like, I don't really belong here. It certainly seems to happen when people think that they just got the job because of nepotism, uh, affirmative action, you know, anything that sort of brings into question, like, do I really deserve this? Do I really belong here? That that may be the thing that's predictive. But also you could say like, this is just something that happens to almost all humans. <laughs> you know, that it's sort of like a normal variation of like, you know, we all have an inner critic. We all have, mm-hmm. you know, lots of traits that sort of happen to all of us. But I think both because it's so common and because it may be more likely among people who have been marginalized, that these, you know, these two reasons are exactly why we shouldn't be calling it a syndrome, even though that's what it's called in pop culture. And and, mm-hmm. and honestly, like not to get like political about it, but I don't think that it's coincidental that something that was identified as happening among high achieving women and was called a phenomenon quickly got rebranded by culture, like our socioculture, so, you know, societal culture as a syndrome. 
Mm. Right. Like, I don't think that that's a coincidence. And so, you know, in the book, I talk about kind of joining me in a cultural rebranding and not calling it a syndrome anymore. And, and I refer to it in the book as the phenomenon, the experience, imposter thoughts, imposter feelings. And, you know, don't use the word syndrome other than in that, like the very beginning and in introducing the concept in the book. So many fascinating threads there. Um, makes a lot of sense, like the intuitive hypotheses that you're that you're describing. It would be interesting to look even at like different parts of the world in terms of, you know, maybe where there's more homogeneity, right? And and whether you see rates, you know, where there wouldn't be quite as much of that, you know, of course there's other types of ways that that group divisions can occur, but whether that is predictive. I, I would also say just as social beings, right? Like that we've compared ourselves for millennia, our inner worlds with what other people pretend to put on the outside. So I would also imagine things like contemporary social media usage and just sort of other trends in in the current moment that we find ourselves in would play a role too, and maybe increasing this in certain people, right? Where you're constantly being made to feel like whatever you know is happening inside of you is not where you quote unquote should be, and someone else is doing it better, and et cetera, et cetera. So really hard to feel content in your own shoes wherever you find yourself these days. Right. And part of that that you're talking about is evolutionarily designed in us, right? Like with that we're we're as social beings, it's adaptive to make sure that you're pulling your weight, that you're mm-hmm. good enough. So you don't get kicked out of the group and mm-hmm. it, you know, you you'll die. Or if you're a Homo sapien way back in the day, like this is life or death. Of course, we don't need to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. But our brains haven't caught up. But I think your point about technology and social media is a a really good one. And this phenomenon was identified in 1978, but the number of Google hits just over the last, I don't know, maybe five years has skyrocketed. Mm. Um, And so I don't know if people are experiencing this more frequently, but I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case because of exactly what you just said in terms of not only does social media create a lot more social comparison, but there's also that like weird, anonymous environment where people are, you know, you see more trolls, you see more people pointing out other people's flaws. If someone thinks you didn't deserve this, I'm going to make sure I tell you, you don't deserve it. And even if that's never happened to us, we observe that happening online. And so I think it creates a little bit more fear that uh, the fear of being found out, I think maybe specifically has increased as a result of the behavior we see on social media, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I really appreciate you pointing that piece out because I hadn't thought about that before. Of Even if it hasn't happened to you, the knowledge that there are, we call them trolls, right? That's okay to, mm-hmm. yeah, that there are trolls or people out there that are some trolls Going. might take offense to what you just said, but <laughs> it'll be okay. <laughs> I need to take a, a page out of Jill's book on being more politically correct. Um, but but that that's out there and that keeps people fearful of, of putting yourself out there, of being, you know, being exposed, of being vulnerable to being exposed. Sure. So it just perpetuates this fear. Even just the idea of everything you say or do potentially being recorded, right? Aside from social media platforms. But I, you know, when I'm giving talks, I have a little thought in the back of my mind that I wouldn't have had 30 years ago of like, oh, if I say something really stupid accidentally, uh, if I stumble over something, is this going to, you know, show up on X? I guess it's well, I get the, canceled. the name of the site, right? Yes. 
<laughs> or I get oh, right. oh, right. X. Yes. It is. <laughs> X. I, just, I, I missed that. I could it have been like fill in the blank. Like, uh, X, Y, or Z. But yeah, X, whatever, <laughs> I guess is what we're calling it now. I, I'll never oh, remember gosh. that one. But yeah, yeah. I think all so many different layers to this. Now, Jill, you, you spoke about this, of course, in, in your writing, but maybe share for the listeners a little bit of how you became so fascinated in this this topic. I think that would be interesting for people to hear. Um, I think, you know, it's, I, I've tried to tie it back to like, when do I first remember feeling this way? And I'm not sure I know that, but there was a moment, there were sort of two things that happened. This first part, I don't think I talked about in my book, but I was getting my master's degree and getting ready to go off to my PhD. And my sort of pseudo mentor at the time sat me down and said, now, listen, you're going to get there and you're going to think, oh no. Everyone here knows more than I do. Everyone here is smarter than me. I don't belong here. Any minute they're going to find out I'm a fraud. And I was like, I already feel that way. How did you know? How are you reading my mind? And, you know, of course, it was because almost all of us feel that way at some point. And he didn't say like, oh, yeah, that's the imposter syndrome or anything like that. I never connected it to that. It was just this, he just read my mind and that's exactly how I feel. And then when I like got into graduate school and, and all of that, basically what happened was I was applying to a number of programs and had a mentor who knew what I wanted to do and said, if, you, if this is what you want to do, you need to go apply to work with David Barlow at the Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders at Boston University. And at the time, thankfully, I had no idea who he was because if I did, I probably never would have applied <laughs> because I would have had massive imposter syndrome. And I was like, okay. So I went and I researched it and I was like, yes, this program is the absolute perfect fit for what I want to do. But it's back in Boston and I was still living in California. Boston was home and I didn't really want to go home. And I didn't tell my family because I didn't want them to pressure me. And then I researched the program and I thought, oh, it doesn't matter. Like that's so competitive. There's no way I'm going to get in anyway. So it doesn't matter. But I still kept it a secret. And then the guilt sort of gnawed away at me. And I thought, I can't, this is like a big deal. I can't keep this for my family. And so I finally like fessed up to my dad that I had applied to this program and he got, my dad's a businessman, like an entrepreneur, nowhere near the field of mental health. And he goes, Dave Barlow, the psychologist. And I was like, yeah, how do you know Dave Barlow? Oh, I've played golf with him. They like belongs to the same golf club. <laughs> I've played golf with him. I'm like, you have? He's like, yeah, a few times. So the next time he saw Dave, he said, oh, my kid is applying to your progress. Oh, great. Tell her to email me. So he had me send my materials to his direct email address. I still didn't quite know exactly what a big deal he was. I'm not sure I would have done that. And he wrote back to me, you know, like very impressive credentials. We look forward to reviewing your application or something like that. I was still 100% sure that I wouldn't get in. And then, you know, fast forward. And of course, you know where the story's going. I did get in. And that was in... 2000, so 23 years ago. And I still, to this day, worry that the only reason a mediocre applicant like me ever could have gotten into such a competitive program is because my dad knew the director. And still, like, I still, like, I still think maybe my dad, like, bribed him and paid him off and they're all just keeping the secret. But of course, it's ridiculous because that doesn't give Dave Barlow much credit, right? Like, that doesn't <laughs> say much about, like, his character and him as a person. And there were 12 spots. Like, why Why would he give the spot to, like, 
somebody who is going to go out into the world and be a, you know, a, a tarnished spot on his program or his reputation. So it's like, rationally, I know that that doesn't really make sense, mm. but emotionally, like, I'm still pretty sure that's the only reason I got in. And <laughs> mm. no amount of rational self-talk will, will shift that. It, it, it's so amazing how long these can, these feelings can persist in us though, isn't it? Um, I was just listening to, what was, oh, uh, the New York Times columnist and he's an amazing sociologist and linguist, uh, John McCorder, um, who writes in the New York Times. And he was talking about how, you know, it doesn't matter if he's got 10 books to his name and sells millions of copies. He traces way back to this feeling that he had when he first got into graduate school that he got in over other applicants based on other reasons. In his case, it was, as you mentioned earlier, affirmative action. And that feeling that he had of like, whether it was true or not, he says is, you know, still sticks with him even decades later, feeling like, you know, 10, 12 books, millions of podcasts, you know, all over the place. So it is amazing just how much that those stories, that those narratives that we tell ourselves linger, even if you've, you know, done a great deal since to disprove it from a, a rational standpoint. Yeah. Absolutely. It's true. And I, I think about that rationalization. And, you know, I will admit that I have a degree of imposterism myself that seems to persist. Jill, you said at some point in our life, but <laughs> mine is still alive and kicking since graduate school. Um, in any case, I do find in some situations it can be facilitative when it helps me to prepare almost like stress or anxiety can to a degree. Mm -hmm. And and obviously in other cases, like you're alluding to, who knows if you would have applied if you knew who David Barlow was, and that maybe could have kept you from an opportunity. I'm wondering if you could speak to a bit more just in terms of, of the benefits of how imposterism might help us and, and how it might hinder us. And the second part of that question is, how do we, how do we know and how do we move past it? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know, Adam Grant has talked a bit about how it can be helpful. One of his graduate students, Basima Tufik, actually did some research, some good research, like, you know, well done, scientifically rigorous research. Um, she's a professor at MIT, I believe, still. Mm. And, you know, she had research studies that found that um, medical students who had higher levels of imposter syndrome, so what, the, what, what it was called in the study, they were more likely to have like better interpersonal skills, like kind of like greater likability and um, work harder to essentially like make interpersonal uh, connections. And Adam Grant talks about how, you know, these imposter feelings might have you reach out to get more input from other people. And that might expand the way that you're thinking about something. It might make you kind of work harder, you know, like because you're mm -hmm. sort of trying to compensate, I suppose, for these things. Uh, so there are a couple ways in which, a few ways in which people have talked about this, you know, how this could be beneficial. But for me, I really think it's like all about the function. And on the surface, it might look like, you know, this, this person you were just talking about, Jonah, who felt like an imposter because of affirmative action, and then he wrote 10 books. Like, we could say that like, well, because he was feeling inadequate, it really motivated him to be productive and to, you know, accomplish these things. And that might be true and it might be fine. But for me, it has a lot to do with function. Why did you write 10 books? If you're only writing those books because you're so uncomfortable with your feelings of inadequacy that you're constantly on this like 
hamster wheel trying to outrun the feeling. So you just achieve and you achieve and you achieve and you achieve and it's getting in the way Mm. of you spending time with family, assuming you care about your family or it's leading to burnout. You know, then there's a cost to this. You don't Mm. outrun it. And then there becomes a really a, a significant cost. Um, you know, of course, the way we might think of it being impactful, like you said, Sapria, is if I had let it deter me from applying to a program that was a perfect fit for me, you know, avoiding opportunities, mm-hmm. there's research that shows that, you know, for job applicants, women will only apply if they meet 100% of the desired qualifications, whereas men will apply if they only meet 60% of those Right. So part of that mm-hmm. is kind of playing out in a way that like I might be missing opportunities because I'm mm-hmm. listening to this voice that says I'm not good enough. So I think it really boils down to like if you are pursuing achievements because they're in line with your values and who you want to be in the world and what you want to stand for. You know, what's the information that feels important for you to disseminate into the world if you're deciding to write a book or do a talk or go after a promotion, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um And so that would be, am I going after achievements for that reason? Am I not avoiding going after achievements, right? So it's either way, your choice is not being driven by fear, right? You're not, you're not doing or not doing based on wanting to feel less fearful or feel less like an imposter, but you're really doing it because it's about what you want to stand for in the world. Does that make sense? Makes great sense. And and actually like, my mind is going in a million directions right now, but really resonating with what you, what you said. And even like something he mentioned in that interview, I forgot to put in was that it stood out with me too, is basically, you know, where does the role of also one's capacity to change come in? Because maybe there is a reality in some, like I can look back on my life. Like sometimes people will say, Oh, Jonah, you went to this school. Right. And I'll say, yeah, I did, but I didn't get in on my own merits. i was a soccer scholarship. And then people like Supriya will say, no, that's not true. You smart. Blah, blah, blah. I say, no, no, it's really true. There's zero chance in hell I would have gotten in if I had not played soccer. <laughs> um, so I fully accept it. But then the question is sort of, what do you do next? And I don't feel like what I'm doing today is really sort of this result of back then. It's based on choices. And, and similar in that interview I listened to, he said, yeah, like I absolutely got in for that reason. Doesn't mean I'm not qualified to do what I'm doing now. Doesn't mean I'm not qualified right. to do what, what's meaningful to me today. And I think that also, maybe there's sort of a role of acceptance there too, that maybe there are, you know, everyone needs a helping hand at some point in life, right? And so there may be realities where, you know, whether it's an opportunity for a graduate school or undergraduate or, you know, a first job that you get and someone that you know gives you a hand up, does that have to also negate everything that comes next? Uh, I would say hopefully not. I love that. It's a, it's an issue of and, not but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I was a, an affirmative action hire and everything that mm-hmm. I've done since has, you know, demonstrated that I deserve to be here yeah. and I am capable and competent. And yeah. Yeah. And really, I really love tying in values to this and, and using that as really kind of this barometer of how you continue to move forward, how you have continued to move forward, Jonah, from this and, and connecting with what's important to you. And that's what's driving you now. And, and I think, Jill, you talk a lot about this in your book in terms of, of how to use your values and, and how you're showing up. Can you speak a bit more to, to what someone that's listening that might be struggling with imposterism in their daily life or 
you know, in a period of their life. Most of our <laughs> listeners, probably. Most, but yeah, 70%. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about how, how to clarify what's important and how to move forward? Yeah, I mean, I think you can kind of do this in a more like sort of big picture global way in terms of really thinking about like, so I, I kind of, I think in the book, I talk about, you know, like the, a, a cone, if you picture mm-hmm. a cone with the wide part at the top and the skinny part at the bottom. And I think of this in three layers. So the first layer are your value domain. So like, what are the areas of living that you want to be focusing your efforts in your family, your friendships, your career, et cetera. That second layer is okay. Under these domains, what are the goals and actions that you want to be moving your feet toward? And then the bottom of the cone, because, you know, like in a snow cone, that's where the juicy stuff is. These are the qualities <laughs> that you want to embody. So this is like, I. so let's say I have um, romantic relationships in my top mm. tier. And then maybe for goals or actions, I want to like plan a weekly date night with my husband. But the qualities, like the reason this is the juicy stuff is because if I go on a date night every week, but I'm on my phone or I'm just talking about the weather, or I'm watching sports on TV instead of like connecting and showing up, then that's like really not the full values equation of what we're talking mm. about. Absolutely. Right? I want to show up and I want to be present. I want to be loving. I want to be affectionate. I want to be open, vulnerable. And these are just my qual- my va- values that I would mm-hmm. want to embody and they would be different for different people. And, you know, so in career, it would be the same kind of thing. Like, what are the goals? What are the the actions that you want to be taking and noticing that imposter thoughts can really get in the way of doing that. Or like we said before, it can make me overdo that. And so what are the qualities that I want to embody? And, you know, if I find that I'm avoiding challenges because I'm afraid and I feel like a fraud, then maybe the qualities are about bravery and persistence and vulnerability and skill building. You know, it could be any any number of different things. And so really just kind of giving some thought to like, how do I want to move? Like we only have control of a couple things and it is our voice, our hands and our feet, right? Like how you move your body and what comes out of your mouth. Like you don't control other people. You don't control the world around you. Like this is really all we've got. And so that's really about, that's what values is about. It's like, how can I move my hands and my feet and my mouth in directions that are consistent with like, what I want to be about in the world and what I want my life to look like. And so then there are, of course, all these other like little exercises from acceptance and commitment therapy that we can kind of like dig into values a little bit more. And I'm happy to do that with you guys if that's something that you want to talk a little bit more about too. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is ties in for listeners to so many broader themes beyond just obviously the imposterism that we've talked about now. I can't tell you how many people on both a professional level that I work with clinically, but also just on a personal level, experience this disconnect so often between, you know, what matters to me and how am I living my life? And that disconnect causes such uh, such a, has such a toll on us from a both a mental and I think you know stress based level as well. That I think that's something for listeners who are sort of tuning in is something to really pay more attention to that hopefully we can get into briefly now is around sort of what what kind of life do I want to live? What really matters? How do I want to you know do those things, right? Because that intentionality that you described, I think, plays a really big role too. It's not just, you know, what am I doing, but how am I doing it? 
And, you know, and oftentimes, whether it's we're working a job that we're not sort of very jazzed about, but we're doing it for this reason, or we're staying in a relationship because it's convenient, I mean, but we really want more passion and aliveness, or we're doing this, that, or the other. So many times we find ourselves just adrift from the life that really matters to us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, just, you know, Joel, I really appreciate you giving an example. We're, we're talking a lot about professional, how in, how this shows up in the professional space, but I appreciate you bringing up a different example and a different role that this can show up in. And I, and I think that that's, you know, true on a broader scale that this can show up around parenting. This can show up around being in, in different types of relationships in your life, that it's not something that is only going to apply to your professional identity. And, and I'm curious oh, about, 100%. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on that and digging a little bit more into that. And Jonah, you were, you were touching on this as well in terms of just this disconnect. Yeah, I think this can show up really in any role, you know, as we were talking about before, like we have a tendency to compare irrespective of the roles that we're in. And I think parenting is a great example because think about how many times, you know, I'm thinking of someone in particular and all over social media, these birthday parties she puts on for her children and the homemade decorations and the homemade cakes. And I see them and I'm like, oh my God, I am the worst mother, right? Like I am out there like talking about my values as a parent, but like really when it boils down to it, I am like so much worse at this than everybody else. Right, like, and it makes you feel like you're a fraud when you're not like meeting what you think are the standards of, you know, I don't know, Pinterest. Like, what, who <laughs> who came up with these standards? You know, um, I think it can show up for like we were talking about like marginalization and things like that. So, you know, if you're a straight cis white male, but you're a stay-at-home dad. Like mm-hmm. that might be a place where you have more of those feelings of an imposter or a fraud. You know, if you are a straight, cis, white male, but you're an older guy working in a, like a tech or a sports mm-hmm. industry, you know, mm-hmm. it can show up there. So like really any place where that comparison can happen in a way that makes you feel like I'm just not measuring up, these kinds of feelings can what if you're the all those things but a stay-at-home podcaster does that count as maybe (laughs) well Well, it could because then it could be like (laughs) oh you know i got this soccer scholarship to this good school and now all i'm doing is sitting at home with my my pajamas with these headphones on hanging out just relaxing professional on top (laughs) that sounds good that's right well did i tell you about my my idea for the shirt super that would have the fake tie that just goes down to there and you just sort of slide it on top so you're just kind of wearing your t-shirt but you you know this could be a whole brand actually i could i could lean into man embrace it then you um, would be an actual imposter. I, I was gonna say that would be healing. Let's lean away from that one. So, yeah. so I, I actually wanted to circle back to the Pinterest example, right? Of the, the person who's sort of doing everything in this very dramatic way. And, you know, I don't know if this is too too far of a leap, but it strikes me that actually some of the people in, you know, whether it's people that we know professionally out there in the world that um, you know, we we think have it all together, but are sort of almost in like an over-the-top kind of a narcissistic way may often be driven by these sort of deep-seated feelings of inferiority and and lack of ability and so are there times where imposter syndrome can almost be reacted against in that way in your in your experience where a person you know we might from the outside be like I wish they had a little imposter syndrome 
but yeah, from the inside, you know, for what they <laughs> what they show out to the world is really coming from definitely. The face. Mm. Well, I think what's most consistent with that is probably the Dunning Kruger cognitive mm. bias, mm-hmm. right? That like mm-hmm. idea that you, this always becomes a tongue twister for me, but but like you fail to recognize, you think you know more than you know, yeah. and fail to recognize what you don't know. That's yeah. probably not put very. You have the confidence, but not the competence. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. That's a much better way to put it. That makes it much easier (laughs) to understand. Yeah. 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 And I suspect the 30% of the people that don't experience the imposter (laughs) phenomenon (laughs) probably do experience the (laughs) Dunning-Kruger cognitive bias. That's along the lines of some life advice I've gotten from my mentor before. (laughs) You should have imposter syndrome, (laughs) imposterism, otherwise you're in that 30%. 30%. No, it's really true. I, I I got that advice too, I'll have to say. Like I, you know, Jill, you and I, we, we speak in some similar circles and, you know, there's, there's, you know, you get an opportunity to speak at a national conference and there's all these names of people who've written books that you read in grad school. You're like, what am I doing in this room? I do not belong here. And I remember one of those people at one point in time, uh, I'll name drop Supriya because you know, fan of the show, David Kessler, uh, pulled me <laughs> aside and he had like this life coaching session with me for lack of a better term for a couple hours. And one of the things he said to me was basically, if you were here at your age stage, sort of where you are feeling like you 100% belong here, I would worry a lot more about you at that point. Mm. <laughs> um, he's like, you either have a little bit of that, you know, not to say, you know, we can work on having less, but like you either have a little bit of that, or if you had none of that, it's like, then we're talking about something else. And I wouldn't like you as much as I do is what he said. So you know, not to say we want to suffer, but, you know, of course, you know, doses, I suppose, for all of this. And it reminded me, you know, I think for me, Joe, like one of the things that's really helped me in that process, I'll just say that I think aligns with some of what you've described is one, we have this very sort of internalized inner focus when we really are in that place of, you know, how am I feeling inside? How am I doing? Am I Mm -hmm. good enough? Are they going to like me? And that sort of, you know, as Frankel called it, that de-reflection, that focus on the outer as opposed to the inner was one of the things that helped me. So I think of, of all the things it's really been, if there's one person out there that's going to hear one thing that I say today in this talk that is going to positively impact them on a personal or professional level, awesome, I've done my job. And putting yeah. that focus on instead of like, am I going to be perfect in doing this has freed me from so many of those sort of self-judgments that I that I used to carry. But I'm wondering too, like for listeners in our in our time, I know we're we could talk for another we we were on the books for three hours, we said, right? <laughs> okay. Or maybe no, no take back still. Are, are yeah. there are there a couple of maybe suggestions? Like if somebody who's listening who's like, yeah, I, I find this really interesting, it resonates, this is me. But what, what do I do? And obviously, that's a longer question. I want to put you on the spot of like s- summarizing your entire book and body of work in thirty seconds. But like some initial thoughts for listeners who might find themselves struggling, this would be would be great. Yeah, no, that's that is like an easy order. I'll give you all the answers right now in thirty <laughs> seconds. Ready, go. No, Sweet. I mean, I think you know, you guys know, I'm an, I'm an ACT practitioner, acceptance and commitment therapy, and though there's only one goal of act and it's to build psychological flexibility. Like, can I be in this moment right now with whatever fear and imposter thoughts and everything else and consciously deliberately choose to do what matters to follow my values. And that's it, right? So that's, it's not easy in practice, but it's actually pretty simple in terms of understanding that that's what we're trying to do. And you know, so getting a little bit more clarity about like, what do I want my life to look like? So in what ways are imposter thoughts, anxiety, insecurity, all the stuff that comes along with imposter thoughts, 
in what ways has that been getting in my way? Is it stopping me from doing that, like achieving goals that feel important to me? Or is it getting me on this hamster wheel where I just can't stop, 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 stop? Um, And what do I want to be different? And, you know, Jonah, you had talked before about values in terms of where am I at now versus where do I want to be? And there's one like little exercise that I'll share because it's it's like a quick and dirty one, but mm-hmm. I find it to be really powerful and helpful. And I didn't make it up. And I, I don't remember what the original source of it is, but it's probably the original we'll put it in the show notes. book. <laughs> put it in the show. It's probably like the Hayes, Strassel, and Wilson 99 book. But it's essentially, if you had to write an epitaph, right? Like something on your gravestone, what would you want it to say? And But what I like about this is what would you want it to say versus what might it say right now? Mm-hmm. You know? So- Like, I want my gravestone to say, here lies Jill. She put herself out there. She took risks even when she was terrified. And she dealt with rejection when it happened. You know, she persevered. What I don't want it to say is, here lies Jill. She always played it safe. So she never got rejected. And she never failed. But she never had to feel any anxiety because of it. Like, ew. (laughs) <laughs> right? Like that is just not at all what I want to be about in my life. Doesn't and sound like a great life. No, no right? And I think what we often do is sort of wait. Like, and, and to be honest, if you look at any other books that are out there or articles or blogs or whatever for imposter syndrome, quote unquote, so much of it is like build your confidence, change your thoughts, you know, like that you have to wait until you feel you know, ready and confident. And I don't know about you guys, but if I did that, I would have done nothing with my life so far. A hundred percent. Yeah. Right. And so to me, like, I wish that I had some like magic wand, quick fix potion to give people that's like, here's how to feel really good about yourself. Never feel like an imposter and get everything you want. But like, honestly, I might, I might get rid of any potential readers by saying this, but this book is really about here's how to go after what you want, even when you feel terrified, even when your mind is trying to convince you that everyone's going to out you as a fraud, because I just don't think that it's possible Mm -hmm. to do it any other way. And and I give lots of examples of, you know, many times that, that I've done that. And there's the fear of rejection. And sometimes it happens and you learn by experience Mm -hmm. that it doesn't kill you and you're fine. But then so often you get the yeses, you get the opportunities, you get these like really powerful experiences that you never thought would happen. And then that sense of like vitality and meaning, I think, you know, creates more courage to keep doing things even when those thoughts and feelings get big. And I'll push back on only one thing you said, which is if we had that potion and we could take that, and I, I actually think that would be a really bad life. And I will say this to people too. So if I could go through life without any resistance, feel safe, feel secure, not have hardship, heartache, heartbreak, no valleys, right? Everything comes with ease. It would remind me a little bit of that Twilight episode back in the day called uh, The Other Place, which is basically about a guy who He's a he's a robber. He's a thief. He's you know in the midst of a robbery. Gets shot. Wakes up in the hospital, and everything starts to go his way. He you know tries to steal things. He gets away. Everything you know, no resistance basically in life. And at one point, he starts to be like, "Wait a second, this isn't so fun. Every day is easy. Everything I want, I get." Mm-hmm. So he cries out to the heavens and says, 
wait a second, I've been a horrible person. I've thieved. I've done all these things. I belong in the other place. Send me there. This is boring. And a voice comes thundering down and says, what makes you think you aren't in the other place? You are in the other place. (laughs) (laughs) I would say a life that has, you know, no suffering is not much of a life at all. And, you know, what would life be without those, those valleys? And yes, I realize listeners as someone who, who writes all these books about happiness, that might seem like a strange message, but I actually think true happiness is much more about meaning, purpose, doing the things that matter, connecting to the things that really bring you alive, as opposed to just yeah. feeling good all the time. A hundred percent. And as you're saying that, it's also making me think back to what you said about hedonic adaptation. If everything's Mm -hmm. just good and pleasant Mm -hmm. all the time, it stops feeling good and pleasant eventually. And then what are you just numb? Like if you have no valleys, but Mm -hmm. also things stop feeling good and pleasant, then like, that's, that's not a great alternative. Mm -hmm. And if you think about like the joy you feel, like, can I tell you a quick little story? That's like something we've got time if you do. Okay. I do. So just tell me if you need to stop, but so I had an, you'll like this, I think, Jonah, to, because of all of the work and writing that you do. So I um, have tried to get up on water skis almost every single summer since I was a very little girl. And I have never, ever, not once even come close to very getting difficult. up on water skis. Yeah. It's a lot harder than it looks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so this year I thought like, do I keep trying? Like at some point are you supposed to just accept that like, this isn't your thing and you give up, right? Andy Duke wrote a whole book called quit. Like sometimes (laughs) it's a good idea to quit. And I I have a bad shoulder and I'm 50. And I thought, gosh, I'm like really asking for trouble. I'm probably just going to injure myself. And then I won't be able to do my beloved Pilates and yoga anymore. And what if I need surgery? But then I thought, but like, what if this is the year? And I can say, oh, I'm getting choked up. And I can say the very first time I ever got up on water skis after 40 years of trying is the year I turned 50. Wow. So I tried and I was very scared I would hurt myself. And I didn't get up the first time. The second time I got up for six whole seconds and it was the best six seconds of my life. <laughs> and, then I, and then I stopped because I did hurt my shoulder a little bit. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be smart about it. And then a couple days later, I tried again and I freaking did it. I went all the way around the circle in the lake, two and a half minutes. I didn't even fall. I ultimately like let go because I was getting so tired. I was like, this is a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> that is but awesome. That's it incredible. was truly one of the most thrilling moments of my entire life. But it would not have felt that good if I hadn't failed for 40 years. Right. And it was about like that perseverance and that just like, you know, like I'm just willing to keep failing in service of like trying to accomplish this goal. And it was almost like the outcome wasn't even as important as Mm -hmm. the trying, but then getting the outcome. Oh my gosh. And my whole family was in the boat and screaming their heads (laughs) off for me. And my kids got to see me model what 40 years of persistence looks like, you know? Well, that 40 years of persistence is what gave those moments, the meaning that you experienced. It was a 40 year valley, right? (laughs) (laughs) Minutes of a valley. There was some good times in between those 40 years and trying to get up on those. Uh, Just just in the water, uh, just out of the water. But yeah, that's, I mean, to your point is like, you you don't get the thrill if you haven't also had the defeat, right? That is such a good reminder. It's such a beautiful story. I hope that you use that in a future book. Um, I'm guessing it's too late to make the cut for this one. Probably will. Yeah. And for days, 
my nine-year-old son for days, he would just look at me with this look of like awe and wonder and go, mommy, you did it. Can you believe it? You did it. <laughs> I mean, I think they were as excited about it as I was, you know? I bet. Oh, that's so cool. Awesome. Love that, that awesome. story. Well, we yeah. we could go on for three hours, I think. But, you know, <laughs> that, that, that that might might not go over so well with, uh, you know, what, what we've, we're supposed to do after this and, and people in your life. So we'll, we'll start to wrap up. But Supri, we got a couple other things we want to wrap up with, right? We do. So a few more questions for you, Jill, before we let you okay. go. And and. One thing really quickly. I just love that story. That is really incredible. And I think it's just such a great example of how we can struggle and how we can continue to persist in those struggles and find meaning. I mean, that is just awesome yeah. that you did that. And um, one other last quick point, something that that's still, that really resonated with me that we were talking about earlier that's come up a few times is social comparison. I think that one of the things that we find ourselves doing, and when you were describing the situation with the birthday parties on Pinterest, which is such a common, common thing that I hear um, and experience myself, is that, you know, we're not immune to this social comparison. There's no amount of time, education, experience that really totally protects us from that. And oftentimes we don't even realize totally when it's happening consciously. And so I think that's such an important piece to consider when thinking about the different areas of life where imposterism might be showing up and and how and why this is showing up for you and what it might be keeping you from. So I just, I really appreciated you being so real with us today, Jill, about how this comes up and how it's come up for you, because I think these are some of the things I I haven't thought about myself. Um, Okay. So we're going to move to our lightning round. Lightning round. I feel like we need to get a sponsor for the lightning round. <laughs> well, maybe when we have more Brought than like, you, maybe, maybe when we have like uh, more than two episodes loaded uh, out there in the world. But, you know, we're getting there. We're getting we're, we're there. Okay. Who would be a good sponsor for the lightning round, I'm thinking. But anyway, I'll, I'll put some thought into that and then we'll push it. The lightning <laughs> round that- brought to you today by Supriya Gill. <laughs> today. Yeah, I, I need to sound a little bit more excited, but you let that percolate, Jenna. Okay. So, um, I think I know the answer to this question, but what is one thing you're working on right now that you're excited about, Jill? Well, I mean, I guess I could have said water skiing, but I've obviously <laughs> nailed that. So <laughs> done and done. <laughs> well, I mean, my book launch is September 19th and we're recording in the the beginning of August. So the thing that I'm mostly working on is getting ready to get this book out into the world. And um, like Jonah, I like to do a lot of speaking and teaching and training and things like that. So trying to, um, you know, find opportunities to be able to talk about this stuff to people out in the world. And quick plug for Jill, uh, you will be speaking live for any listeners who are in the therapy world. I know in October in Anaheim, uh, live and in person, if you want to go see the illustrious Dr. Stoddard um, speak at the Innovations in Psychotherapy. Did I get the, the conference name right? Innovations? Yes, in with you. With right. me. I'll be this there This will be well. the first time I'll you and I get out. to meet in person, like Which truly in person. Truly in person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So definitely. And of course, awesome. you know, we'll have more information about you in the show notes as well, but uh, about all your work. But other question is on a personal level, what is one thing that you're looking forward to most there, whether it's travel related, exciting events coming up, anything kind of in your non-work world that's uh, that's happening for you? Ooh, you know, that's a harder question because it used to always be like 
travel to go see my family, but now I live near my family. So I just got back from three weeks in Maine, on the lake, in the woods with my nephews, my kids, my brother, my dad, my, you know, the whole gang. Um, so those are always the things that I look forward to. And that like just came to an end, but I'm still sort of like on that high. And I'm not, I don't know what the next thing will be. I'm Maybe have to, water I'm skiing have to again. That's some thought. Maybe water skiing we'll again. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Okay. And of course, Jill on the happy hour, we want to hear about how you cultivate happiness and well-being in your daily life. How I cultivate happiness and well-being. Did you guys send me these these questions and I was supposed to prepare? No, these, these are all surprises. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. I, I was like, shoot, did I, I feel a little on the spot. Like I should have prepared for I'm like mm-hmm. in class without no, having We make things real here on the happy hour. Yeah. We want the real, real you. Yeah. <laughs> like really put you on the spot. Um, I mean, this feels like a lame answer, but I think it's just, it's, it's like two things. It's looking for experiences that are like fun or awe-inspiring or joyful. And then just like really showing up and being present. But even if that's little things, like I think I even shared with you at one point, Jonah, that when we first moved back to New England and had our first autumn I was just driving down the freeway and like really taking in the foliage. And I started to cry, not sad tears. Like I was so moved by the beauty. Whereas I think when I lived here, when I was younger, it just, I took it for granted and I didn't show up and pay attention to it. And, you know, that's something I think that I've just learned to do more because of people like you, Jonah, who write about this. And we've had you on our podcast and had Frank Keel who came on to talk about Mm -hmm. wonder and, You know, so I think that I've just learned how to show up for these small, meaningful moments. And it's it has really helped me to cultivate a lot more of those experiences of, of joy and, and happiness for sure. That is anything right. but a cheesy answer to be <laughs> present with the moments that make us feel alive. I mean, what's the yeah. point of our brief time on this little rock if it's if it's not something like that? So I think that's a, <laughs> that's a great answer. But by the way, quick pro tip. You're back on the East Coast now. You said freeway. You got to remove that from your lexicon. Highway. Oh, what is it? A highway? Yeah, that's right. Now, highway, oh, freeway. Highway. Yeah, yeah. expressway. Yeah, highway. Ways, okay. But, oh, right. interesting. No more, no more freeway. That's a dead giveaway <laughs> no that, you're, that you're a Cali person. Um, <laughs> or if I say I was driving on the 95, oh, you know, we call it the five in California. There's no thes. There's no the thes. So yeah, that's gonna, right. You're gonna, yeah. you're gonna be exposed. Um, last but not least, <laughs> you have talked about your wonderful work, your upcoming book. Uh, for listeners that want to keep tabs on you, learn more about your work, where can they find you on the World Wide Web, on social media, Wide wherever Web. it might be? <laughs> uh, where can listeners my, learn more about you? The, my website is just jillstoddard.com, and you can find my social media there. You can sign up for my newsletter there. I actually, we didn't talk about this in the interview, but there are uh, five like different subtypes of imposter, and there's a quiz on there that if you want to find out your subtype, there's some different types of subtype of avoider mm. that I talk about in the book. So there's a quiz there that you can take. So yeah, there's all sorts of ways that you can kind of find me and follow me just from going to jillstoddard.com. Fantastic. And they can find all your socials there. We'll, of course, put those in the show notes, folks uh, who are listening. But what an honor. What a treat uh, to get Such to spend this time with you today. 
Uh, thanks for taking the yes. time. I know we, we promised you less time than this, but you were very gracious, very generous with your time. And we so appreciated getting the chance to learn. Just meant my today. husband had to do kid pickup, which is fun. <laughs> oh, you were working. You can blame, blame us for that. This counts as work, right? I'm telling myself that. Totally. Isn't? Yeah. This is, this is hard well, work, you guys. listeners. This is so much fun. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is so great. Thank you so much for joining us here on the <laughs> thanks, Happy Jill. Hour. Take good nice care. Thanks, guys. Great Bye. to see you. Bye.